Hello fellow time travelers, I'm Tony Witt with the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the podcast in which we undertake the insert adjective here task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm joined by... Dalton Hughes. And by... Alison Fitzsafrey. And we record our episodes twice a month. You're listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. Enjoy your travels. I'm your host, Joe Peterson. With me, as always, my good friend and co-host, Eric O'Branson. Eric, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. I'm trying to still ease my way into the so-called summer vacation, but <laughs> it's not really much of a vacation because I'm still which working is, on stuff, but at least the weather's nice. Want, prep for summer semester? Is that pretty much? <laughs> yeah, prep, prep for the fall semester, developing a new course this semester, which sounded like a great idea before I started oh, doing yeah. it. So, yeah, I'm... I'm but keeping my head above water, you know. Kind of a similar yeah. idea to, hey, let's put a podcast out every week on a new, you know, movie. That... <laughs> but, you know what? We made it past episode 50. We're at episode 51 right. we're tonight. At, this is episode 51. So I feel like wow. it's a little victory every every episode from here on. Yeah. 50 just seems like so damn many episodes. Like, I was just thinking about that after last week's. And, um, like, 50 episodes. That's a, I am, you know, a subscriber to many podcasts i enjoy that only you know have been going for years that only have 30 episodes and it's like i mean they're probably putting a little more into their episodes or into what they do than i mean we watch a couple movies and drink a couple beers and shoot the shit about them that's our what we do so it's it's relatively easy i'm not gonna but pretend it, that we're you know reinventing the wheel here we're doing no, a but lot it of does like give investigative me, journalism or something it, but. It, but it does give me the opportunity to be like suck it malcolm gladwell you know, <laughs> right. I keep waiting for another goddamn season of revisionist history. Meanwhile, Me I'm Me churning too. these things out. What are you doing? Knitting a yeah. fucking sweater. I mean, it's you not know? like you're writing like five books and doing three other, you know. Well, I mean, don't spread yourself too thin, my... right? You're, you're, you got two kids you're taking care of constantly, you know, like full time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm trying to true. get, you know, work stuff done. We got kids and all that stuff too. What's, what's going on, Malcolm? Yeah, good point. You know, what are you doing? What a lazy guy. What a lazy guy. <laughs> if this is what it takes to get a shout out from Revisionist History, I'll do it. But <laughs> I'll make sure and tag him on all the Twitter posts. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, tonight, though, we're going to be continuing our conversation that we started last week. Where, um, again, this is like a theme that wasn't a theme until we realized that it was kind of a theme. Um, yeah. 80s horror films that turned. Uh, kind of the status quo around last week. Of course, we talked about the the great cult classic, Return of the Living Dead, which kind of made zombie movies 
fun and silly compared to the the uh, no argument great but dark and heavy and i like the word you used for that last week meaty uh, mm-hmm. kind of consistency that the Romero zombie films, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and all that before, um, made it fun again. But tonight, we're going to be turning it around, right? So this is, we're going to be looking at a, the vampire movie that made vampires actually kind of serious, scary again. And yeah. this is the 1987 American, actually neo-Western horror film directed by Catherine Bigelow, Near Dark. to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short for us to get home. You help me out? What are you on? Believe me, I told you. Just don't think of it as killing. Amen. Amen. Don't think at all. There's something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of how. Nervous. I would be too if I were you. Near dark. Could be your boys falling in with the Check out time. Watch yourself some time, son. Like damage my family, let him go! And I need to you know, the first thing I want to say about Near Dark, like right off the bat, is um, it has taken us, it, unless I'm mistaken, but it has taken us to episode number 51 to review a film directed by a woman on this podcast, which is unfortunate. I think you're right. It's a, yeah. it's a truth of Hollywood, especially because we're looking backwards, right, to the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of really wonderful horror and genre films directed by women and i want to try to make a point to get a few more on the program but unfortunately they're just they just don't really exist back then Catherine bigelow is a is a pioneer in a lot of ways and this is crazy because it's 1987 right you think like um but she is i mean she's a she's kind of a pioneer because she's not she's making essentially i mean even though this was low budget it was a little bit under the radar at the time but it's it's essentially a genre hollywood style film right it's uh, it's not art house it's not you know it's not feminist i mean i wouldn't say it's not feminist but it's not feminist in like the fact that it's a political film or um it's it's 
you know, it's an action vampire movie, and uh, she she really handles it well. And it, it, we'll talk probably, I'm sure we're going to mm-hmm. dive into a little bit of, like, perspectives and how, like, maybe you can, you know, read into a little, you know, see see the signs that this is, you know, a, a woman in the director's chair versus, you know, how, you know, somebody else might have done it. But, um, yeah, I guess really what I wanted to say is it's 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 too bad and i i kind of like kind of feel like i should apologize for it but i, I don't think it's it's us that you know like i because i can think of all the other films that i enjoy a lot that were directed by um directed by women just uh this is the first one we've done and it's kind of kind of uh, tells I you think, something yeah. about the era it, that we're talking about or the era we focus on because uh, and i yeah and i think that's one. an important thing to take note of i mean we we've mentioned before like the the degree of nudity that you see the frequency of nudity mo- of course female mm. nudity you're never going to see male nudity uh but you know, it depends fe- on what movie but yeah in general yeah. yes <laughs> yeah female nudity much more much more common uh and in the 80s it was used gratuitously for fun just constantly it had no need in a scene but let's we need yeah. boobs in the scene well um, and i, I... I don't necessarily want to, you know, go on a rant about damning that stuff because I I do think that like you can there is like a a time and a place for you know fun. Nudity can be fun. I mean sex can oh, be fun. Yeah. It's 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 like there's I don't want to say that like every time something's put there that it's not totally essential to the plot that it's some kind of like sexist male you know um yeah I mean who care you know I am a man, so who gives a shit what I think about it in the long run? But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I I think that those things are okay. Like I'm not, I don't want to like say okay, there's you know, non-essential nudity e- equals sexism. Like I don't I I don't think those lines actually connect. And a lot of no, times I, we, people I, kind of will draw those lines together. And eh, I, I think I this think is that's... where the word gratuitous comes in, where it was used even more than just for laughs. It, it became formulaic and. Yeah, I mean, obviously... I mean, if the rest of your movie sucks and the only thing that you can do is, you know, put a lot of female nudity in it to get people to watch it, then I'm like, eh, okay. Yeah. It's kind of a gray area, right? But And, and, there, was, and there was a fair amount of that, I think. But, oh, sure. Uh, you know, just using that, though, as an example of, of how things change, if you look at what's considered a... You know, the, the way relationships are sometimes shown in movies in the 80s, like you could have... Uh, you know, a, a guy and he's really, really aggressive and mean to his girlfriend or wife. And that's used in the 80s as an establishment of, yeah, he's kind of a jerk. Today, yeah. that same scene is used to show this guy is a monstrous piece of shit. And so, <laughs> you know, it's just the, the, the tones of things have, um, I don't want to say that the tones have changed. They're being used to be, I think, more realistic in what they're really reflecting. There was, there's, we don't tone it down in, in a way like that anymore. We don't give things a pass. And I think that that's good. And you, I think it's like the era of near dark. Things were certainly, um, played more for, you know, fantasy Hollywood, you know, films were a fantasy. I think we have, we do focus on real realism more now. Mm -hmm. And we do focus on drawing out regal. And, and I issues think and really that's that. what makes directors like Catherine Bigelow so incredible. And, and this film mm. in particular, 
to, to give a, a little bit of a, a brief synopsis, I know we kind of already got off on a oh, bit yeah. of a rant there. <laughs> uh, a small town farmer's son reluctantly joins a traveling group of vampires after he is bitten by a beautiful drifter. And that's not doing the full film justice, I don't think. It's kind of, you know, there's been a lot of these gets bitten. You know, this is the same plot, essentially, reading it that way as Lost Boys, in yes. a way, right? Which is but, a great, like... It's, I mean, I think comparing those two films is is because they're 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 peers essentially. Yeah, uh, within a year yeah. of each other. Yeah. The difference in the vampires in this one don't expect fangs, don't expect glowing yellow eyes, <laughs> don't expect anybody turning into bats. It's it's pretty much these are blood sucking or blood drinking murderers who burn in the sun. Yep. And are immortal. Super realistic take on vampires and vampirism and super kind of realistic violence. Yeah, I mean, the violence, but like just the movie itself, its setting is so different from anything I see in like 80s Hollywood movies. And it's just kind of, I don't know, I mean, it on on its surface, it is... uh, and I, I hate I hate to make the comparison, but on its surface, if you describe the plot of this to somebody, they're going to be like, "Oh, so that's a lot like Twilight, right?" Like, <laughs> like well, there, this was going to be remade uh, a number of years ago, and that was the reason they didn't canceled yeah. it. And you know, yeah. it's it's funny that you mentioned there is kind of a, you know, it's called a neo western. Originally, mm-hmm. Catherine Bigelow and Eric Red, who wrote this together, wanted it to be a western, a yes, period western. Eric but, Red wrote this screenplay as a western, I believe, and then adapted it to to be a vampire movie. I guess I don't know at what stage of development the you know the vampires and everything came into it, but I, I have a feeling that it wasn't a huge shift in like the the plot or the um, you know the, the events of the movie probably didn't change a whole lot because it was yeah it was going to be a neo western, so it was like a modern ish. Western crime thriller is what I what I read that Eric Red had in mind. The vampire thing kind of came later. Maybe that was an addition to get some money out of studios or whatever. But um, yeah, it works. It, by the way, Eric Red wrote another really phenomenal um, '80s movie that I love, and we need to get on here, and that is The Hitcher, I believe. Yes. Was, uh, yeah, yeah. Which this you can tell this feels the same kind of thing. It's, it takes place in the West, but it's contemporary. Mm-hmm. And and it's which is great. I don't feel like there's a lot of movies that take place in horror films, especially that take place in the modern West. And I, you know, I've you spent time out there. I've spent a lot of time out there, and it's yeah, it's such a, a beautiful, um, but very unique part of the country. Um, mm-hmm. That there there is a, a tone to it where there there is a, a a beautiful creepiness to it in certain parts i think it's just the desolation of things but uh one of the things that i've read about near dark is that you know you had movies like fright night and lost boys and you know the vampires were very trendy they were very fun and it was these were bright movies you know even for movies that take place at night with blood-sucking monsters they were very bright um, and I think this is an interesting companion to Lost Boys. I think that's the one that I yeah. keep coming back to is because it even plot wise it hit, it shares some um, some similarities. So it's you know about you know kind of an outcast group of vampires surviving kind of you know under the radar who is discovered by you know people um, regular people and um, 
it's just done so differently, I think. And the, the funny thing is that, the, yeah, they're within two years of each other, and they're both considered to be classics, although I think people tend to perseverate or remember The Lost Boys a little more than Near Dark. Um, I think the cast in it was more, you know, you've got the Corys, you mm-hmm. know, you've got Kiefer Sutherland, and, you know, it, it was, uh, they were, those were big names in 1987. Um, but when this was originally pitched or originally written as a Western, they actually had a hard time getting financial backing for it. And they thought, oh, you need to yeah. mix it with something else. What's ironic, so essentially they didn't think Westerns were, it yeah, would work Westerns as a Western. Were. What's funny is a year later, Young Guns came out and it was a huge <laughs> hit with Westerns, right? And then we had, you oh, know. I'm sure then there's a ton of Westerns because, yeah, Young Guns was a major hit. Yeah, spawned a sequel and, you know, had movies like Silverado and, uh, you know the Lonesome Dove miniseries, and eventually know, Tombstone, and Tombstone, which is which is but... one of the the most successful westerns of of modern times. So mm-hmm. yeah, I I would love to have seen what this movie could have been in its original incantation, and I think it's it's still very very good. In fact, that one of the other great things about Catherine uh, Bigelow is her she. she I've yet to see a movie of hers I didn't walk away with. Uh, I didn't walk away impressed. I, yeah. I may not have like cared for everything about the films, but I I was always impressed by something. And she has a very she went she's gone through quite a lot of, of different kind of evolutionary changes in her mm-hmm. filmmaking style, but they've always been consistently interesting. Well, I think um, this film and then um, Strange Days is also what it, one yes. I consider to be a modern classic uh, that she directed. Um, yeah, both of them yeah. totally under underappreciated. And obviously, she won you know Best Picture for The Hurt Locker as well. So. Well, yeah, with Zero Dark Thirty and The Hurt Locker, she's now onto this this kind of pseudo documentary style stories in a way, mm-hmm. and and she's developed a, a very unique style for that and and yes but this, I, the I style this, of this one and the style totally of foreign days. from from this movie this movie is is very i don't i don't i was gonna say it's not flashy and that sounds like i'm i'm detracting from it and i'm not it's just very very down to earth so I, I think that uh, that evolution to kind of the quasi documentary style is 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 here like i mean you could see that in um the way she chooses to right um not only shoot her actors and but also the way she directs or moves the story forward it's paced very quickly you kind of only get like um the pieces you need to understand your characters you're never really given long diatribes or origins or um you're not giving like you're not given like a huge info dump about who the vampires are where they come from or what their history is or even that they're vampires at all um you're just kind of left to understand those things because of what's going on around so, so essentially you're put into caleb's shoes the, the main character and that is that you're you're kind of forced to deduce all of this stuff by what's going on around you and mm-hmm. um they never really talk about vampire never comes up <laughs> like uh at one point caleb's father after they rescue him uh from the group of vampires Ask him, you know, what the hell's going on back there? And he just kind of says, uh, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And that's pretty much all we've, the only kind of mention of like anything paranormal or outside of the realm of um, the everyday that we're given is just kind of the events that we witness. 
as thing as you know the the, the plot progresses. Yeah, I also think it, I was getting to it a little bit earlier because I, I I unfortunately brought up Twilight, but um, I think this film is evidence that like the vampire romance genre doesn't always have to be trash. Like it's not it it isn't something that we just kind of fodder for teenage girls and you know that's fine i people like what they like and whatever but this one um this i think this proves that that doesn't necessarily like just because something's a vampire slash romantic slash action i don't know i don't know where you put this really but but the crux of the story is that it's a it's a vampire romance <laughs> movie so yeah absolutely it, it, that that's definitely a big part of it i have to wonder kind of echoing back to your comment about this they never say the word vampire or anything you know i i was wondering when i caught that i noticed that upon this reviewing and i have to wonder so does this movie take place in a universe where there is no vampire mythology because that's usually like the first thing comes up oh there's fucking vampires man no the fact that like you wouldn't believe me if i told you and it's like okay he could have said vampires crazy right but no, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. This is like a totally yeah. foreign thing. And and maybe that's me over-reading things, which is possible. But um, I think it's also not trying to plan, because like, like we were talking about earlier, like in the early 80s, there was vampires were kind of a, a fodder for comedies. And I guess the thing that keeps popping into my head, although I think this is right around the same time, is the, the Jim, early Jim Carrey film, Once Bitten. Yeah, um, I feel like all the vampire movies in the '80s are kind of like that, you know. Uh, uh, even the Lost Boys has its moments where it's kind of just hammy, um, stereotypical vampire fare, right? Um, oh, absolutely. And this yeah. one, it's it's really like Eric Red's script is really grounded in reality, and uh, so much to the point where they they made the creative decision. Him, you know, I don't know if it was Catherine Bigelow or him or you know set and costume people. But they make the decision to not do anything with their vampires. Like, they don't give them fangs. They don't have any, like, supernatural elements. They're not, like, overly pale or makeuped up. They don't have glowing eyes, like you mentioned. They don't have long fingernails. Actually, Lance Hendrickson's character does have long fingernails. But but naturally, like, you know, a weird homeless guy would. (laughs) Yeah, and the only thing they have that is, you know, so-called supernatural is they're impervious to injury. You can shoot them and nothing happens. And they're really, really strong. And, of course, the setting on five things. So, okay, there's quite a lot of supernatural stuff, but it's not oh, sure, but it's it, not it, part it... of the image. Mm-hmm. They look like drifters, because they are. They right. drive around in a van that's got aluminum foil over the windows so it can block out the sun. And, you know, they... I mean, this is essentially the Manson family on wheels. It really... The... That's a good way of putting it. And I thought it... There's an interesting sequence where you're seeing how each one of them hunts differently at night. Oh yeah, I love that. It, it, it it's such a brilliant way to characterize each one of these people in a limited amount of time. Like, yeah, right? I don't know. It's just great, great sequence because it shows them, you know, each each of their different you know wiles they use to to bring prey or to stalk their prey or to bring prey in. Well, and you've got the one character, one of the vampires, the character Homer, mm-hmm. who is a child, probably like a nine or a ten-year-old, but mm-hmm. technically Homer, I think, is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, vampire in the clan. Yeah. They keep referring to him as old man. I, I get the picture that he may be older than all of them. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because I think even even Jesse, who Lance Henderson's character, Jesse, is kind of the 
de facto leader of the clan of vampires i think even refers to him as the old man at one point so right and and that you in a, in a short bit of dialogue like you said there's no long diatribes in here but just in the dialogue that's very expertly crafted in this you get the impression mm-hmm. that that's something that this particular character really struggles with like he wants a friend he wants other kids around not all not always to like bite and you know feed off of but because he he wants somebody like him yeah because he's so isolated because because he's an old man trapped in the body of a child i mean what would that be <laughs> yeah you know, he's had all this experience but he still looks like looks like and thus is treated like a child so i i think each one of these characters is very well I don't want to say mm-hmm. very real, well realized because because Homer and Jesse are a bit more re- well realized than the rest of the crew. Um, Bill Paxton's character it exists for kind of the reason Bill Paxton's character exists for in every movie in the '80s, and it's to get all the good lines and <laughs> um, kind of chew the scenery, right? Like, I had a uh, love hate relationship with that man as an actor. <laughs> it's like. God, but he's so like wonderfully memorable in things, right? I mean, he's just he's he's Bill Paxton. I mean, he he does what he does. He he did the same thing in Aliens, and he did the same thing in uh, weird, um, weird weird science. science. <laughs> yeah. So, but kind of throughout the eighties, he just gave us all these great quotable lines. So I mean, so his performances are memorable, even if they are a little bit uh. I don't know. Like Over the said, top is the, like we I, yeah. I say that all the time, but um, he's just he is Bill Paxton. He's just he's he is a character actor that is just a character himself, I think. And he, in his older age, definitely sold me on the fact that he is a super solid actor and he is you know a master of his craft and all that. But in the eighties, he was he was the 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 one liner guy, you know. So, well, I mean, when he passed away, just what a year or two ago. Um, yeah. which was kind of tragically. Even I was yeah, pretty bummed so. out about that, and I was much like, "Oh, I, I can't stand him in so many movies." But you're right; it's like that's kind of why you like him because yeah. he creates these memorable characters. And this is one that I don't think he gets enough credit for. People, oh no, you know, no this even is my, even in, this is my in, favorite Bill Paxton character, actually. Yeah, but a lot of people they refer to Chet from Weird Science, you know, or mm-hmm. his his role in movies like Aliens, uh, even Predator Two. Um, but yeah, this one, he's really quite terrifying in this. Yep. And it works for this character, like in a way that, I mean, it kind of works in aliens and, and, but I don't know, he's just, because of who he is, you know, he's a, he feels invincible. Right. And I think that gives his like weird bravado, like it grounds it in reality. Like the, what this film does kind of really well all throughout is it just kind of grounds it in reality. So his, yeah, his over the top, like, you know, kind of calling everybody out and gut checking everybody and just kind of being a loudmouth jerk is part of his, the fact that he's, you know, he's this immortal and he feels like he's invincible. Um, turns out not to be true but (laughs) right well the barroom scene i think i feel like we got to talk about the barroom scene oh yeah because that is one of the uh, people give quentin tarantino a lot of credit for building suspenseful scenes 
Yeah, I mean, this one's right and right out of this is that right game. up there with if if you love the opening scene of things like Inglorious Bastards, um, this is really intense. Where they walk into a bar, and and it's actually the the other cast members of, of the the bar patrons and the bartender who are really selling this. I know I'm screwed, but I have no idea what I'm going to do. Kind of uh, response mm-hmm. to this. Uh, it's it's really really good, and again, you see Bill Paxton being absolutely terrifying in this as just this, like you said, there's the bravado, and he's just mocking people that he knows I'm going to just murder you in a second, but I'm just having yeah. fun playing with you. It really was that, you know, like a cat playing with a mouse before they kill it, and it was, it was very very effective scene to show what these people what these creatures are willing to do it's uh yeah yeah it's a very 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 memorable scene um now this is a movie again i would recommend it but i would say that you you have to kind of know what you're getting into first because it's it's It's... not just a it's it's not a a road western style movie it's more (laughs) like the road warrior with vampires (laughs) right um yeah, I don't, I'm like, it, a lot of firsts here, kind of, and I don't know if they really are firsts, like I, like I said, we're going to pull like a, a first episode Zack Snyder thing here, like we talked about last week, and, and saying he was innovating with the fast-moving zombies, and then being like, oh wait, no he wasn't, but um, it's the first time I remember seeing something like the Homer character, like a child vampire, and of course uh, uh, the first thing that pops in my head is the movie Let the Right One In. Um, mm-hmm. kind of focuses on that phenomenon. Uh, it it pulls a lot of parallels to what they're doing with the with the Homer character. Um, so it's not as like as as drawn out as that, or as as uh, don't ex- get to explore kind of the psyche of the old person trapped in the young person's body. But it's 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 still done very well, and you kind of you do understand those things. What Catherine Bigelow is able to do really really like fantastically in this movie is to tell you a lot about each of her characters without having to spend a whole lot of screen time on doing it. Um, right. Which is, it's, it's something that, you know, you just brought up Quentin Tarantino. He's the, the exact opposite, <laughs> like kind of person, kind of filmmaker. Um, this is a really, really tight movie. It's, it runs 90 minutes and so much stuff happens in 90 minutes. I was thinking about this as I was watching it. Is that if this was a modern, um, if we're telling the story now, like let's say Netflix gets a hold of this, right? Just hypothetically, this is a twelve-episode series. You could tell this exact same story, right? And you could flesh yeah. out these characters. You could do an episode on each one of their histories, and you could you could um, you could do Near Dark as a series. Absolutely, twelve episodes long. You there is enough stuff here to stretch it out to twelve episodes. Yeah. I don't think it needs to be done. I think they do it perfectly in 90 minutes. And that that is just kind of... It started to occur to me, like, what's the difference between the way we told stories in the 80s, 1987, when this came out, and the way we're telling stories now? Because I think what Eric Redd and Catherine Bigelow were able to accomplish in their 90 minutes, seriously, Netflix, you know, would take 12 episodes to do. Um, yeah, and, I, and oh, sure totally. they would they would flush it out a lot more, and you would see a lot of what happened. You would get those like little character details, but at the end, would it be a whole lot different? Like, would, would you feel differently about the narrative 
Um, well, it's like Stephen King, you know, states when asking, you know, when people recently asked him about, you know, the remake of Pet Cemetery and they changed some things and, you know, the big changes. And he said, yeah, mm-hmm. but the, the story still ends how it ends. And, you know, he gave this, and I may have mentioned this on here before, but, you know, he gives the analogy of, you know, how you can, you can take different interstates to get across the country. You still right. end up in the same place, you know. So if you end up in the same place, that's fine. I don't care what you do to change. That's not really changing the story. So you're right. You, Netflix could stretch it out into 12 or two seasons or something, right? Yeah. So to get back to your question, though, what, what was different back then than now? Um, gosh, at, at the risk of sounding like, you know, the, the grouchy old man shaking his fist <laughs> to get off my lawn. Um, people writing actual stories yeah rather than writing to specifically twist and turn an audience i mean we we just finished you know a week or so ago the last episode of game of thrones and Mm -hmm. the the ending of that (laughs) was controversial to say the least or at least it wasn't equally received um and and there's been a lot of discussion lately oh here's this big cultural phenomenon and you know with with the way that the writers are writing they're writing for tv which is essentially what Netflix is, right? You're writing for those types of series. Right. You're writing for TV. And that's to, yeah, we know what story we want to take, but we're going to meander around and get there, and we're going to build up all this complexity. And then at the end, the idea is to have a big ending and a tight reveal, but ultimately you always, you've built up so many side stories that they're all these loose threads. And yeah. I feel like this is, it's a very straightforward story. It's actually not that original of no, a story. I mean, sure. It's a it's a tragic romance. It's honestly. a tragic it's... romance, right? But it is being told in a, in a medium, uh, a genre medium that's really quite unique that hadn't really been done before like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and coupled with this, let's it's it's kind of ironic to say this, but uh, a really radical way of portraying vampires, which is, well, what if they didn't look like vampires? <laughs> What if they just looked like bikers? Yeah, what if they didn't wear capes and, you know, if they weren't yeah. pale, you know, had the Dracula haircut. Yeah. And what if half the capes? rules applied? Yeah. And, and you know, to our vampire mythos. And ultimately, I, I mean, think that's one of the reasons this movie is largely ignored is because yeah. there's no, it's, it's... Well, compare this to something then like, um, which is its contemporary as well, but something like Fright Night, which is a little more on the comic side, but certainly a solid 80s vampire film which i like a lot as well um that one plays all of the classical tropes right and this one plays none of them it's uh it does it's it's kind of redefining vampires for what i feel like is kind of redefining them for the 90s and we're gonna go in the 90s you'll see this kind of thing or at least a little more grounded reality take off and then eventually it will bleed into you know go back and listen to our vampire werewolf episode and it will bleed into like all of that you know underworld right. action movie stuff because this is i mean essentially that's what this is this is underworld is in this genre it's it's a vampire romance film that is essentially an action movie um this is just done a whole lot better than that yeah so it really uh, was well because it wasn't trying to aim for visual spectacle mm-hmm. you know there are some special effects in this and not just gore effects which there's yeah, some I mean, but and you know, they're just fine. The, like it's, but yeah, the, it's not the, it's the not fire the scenes and stuff like that. You know, when people are burning and things. Um, and then, but which we should okay. probably take a minute before we 
wrap all of this up, but I'd take a minute and talk about um, Lance Henrik's character, Lance Henriksen's character, Jesse, in this movie, who is one of my... We talked about Bill Paxton, and he's fantastic as well in this movie, but uh, Jesse is one of my all-time favorite vampires, and that's of any era. Like, he's just... Um, I feel he's given a shit ending in this movie. It's the one of the only things I don't like about this movie is that Jesse is just such a badass in a different way than Bill Paxton's character is. Who's just kind of Bill Paxton's character is that guy that's just full of uh, you know testosterone and and bravado and it's gonna get in your face and he's gonna show you how much more powerful he is than you are. And Jesse's happy to sit back and kind of let this all happen, right? But he's definitely got a hold over these people. He's just such a I don't know, you get the impression he's such a, like, master kind of controller. And that, that I think his his character's kind of the reason I made the Manson family comparison, because he's got that kind of control over everybody. Um, not to mention he's just kind of a great character. He, he They don't characterize him a lot. He makes a couple of comments about his past, and um, uh, Caleb asks him at one moment how old he is. And he said, well, let me just put it this way. I fought for the South. And he's like, what do you mean the South? And he's like, well, we lost. <laughs> and that's it that's all you really get about how old is he is so you know in his real life he was obviously as old as the civil war perhaps older who knows um the reason i feel like he got the short end of the stick in this is like i don't see there's a moment at the end of this film when he and um i never remember the diamond other female vamp yeah her he and diamondback are in this car and they're about to try and run, you know, Jesse and, or sorry, Caleb and uh, his younger sister down on the roadway. And I feel like there, he's given a moment where he just kind of, like, gives in to fate and, like, accepts, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I've had it here. I'm just gonna, like, the car just blows up and they're gone, right? I feel like that's just... Yeah. It's the one. It's kind of out of character for him. Like if he would have slammed that gas and just really tried to give it his all, and then the car would have blown up, sure. But like that kind of like scene, they're going cutting back and forth between his face, Jesse's face, Diamondback's face, and it seems like he just kind of gives in to like, okay, well, that's it, right? Just doesn't seem to match anything else he does in the film. So the, that's one of my gripes about this movie. Yeah, it's really I more like just that one a, scene's edit the way it was edited yeah you know maybe two more of those scenes of those you know back and forth pickup shots and it could (laughs) have made a big difference but right no yeah that that's really one of my only critiques as well is that the the real you know taking out the real villains is fairly anticlimactic yeah Um, and actually they kind of take themselves out like there's not much yeah well, the way the movie takes them out i mean uh, even even the way bill paxton's character goes is kind of it it felt like it was because it was a bit shoehorn foreshadowing mm. um so yeah there there are some critiques i have about this as from from a, a i guess not really from a general technical perspective but just kind of from a an editing perspective or a little bit of story writing kind of craft right but yeah. ultimately it's not enough to really detract that much from this um i mean I, I guess if you want to get gripey about the movie i'm not a huge fan of the fact that a blood transfusion is all it takes to cure the vampirism in in the movie yeah. it seems a bit obvious like 
why would anybody live through the hell that they were living through if you could just get a blood transfusion and be fine? Exactly. But, yeah. But I mean, then you start and you start breaking down vampire mythos in general there, and you're yeah. So anyway, I'll let that one go just because. Um. Yeah. If if it it, it just kind of like plays like the, the the you have a lot of tortured souls right in this group of vampires, and because of the situation that they they find themselves in. And they're all coping with it in different ways. And a blood transfusion cures the... the it, and I was fine when... Ca- the first time I saw this movie, I was fine with it when Caleb did it. Because he was a young vampire. Right? He'd, been, he'd been going through this for days. Like, maybe he was still in transition or something. But when, then when he was able to cure May um, with blood, I was like, okay, well... <laughs> Like somebody, you, you don't think one of those people would have thought of that to release themselves from this life of you know this, uh, Im, you know infant infant infinite suffering or whatever they're going through. Exactly. Like, yeah, that was yeah. that was a bit of a stretch, but you know we've yeah it's been that's been tried in a number of other horror films as and, well. It was even one I'm, of the I'm original willing... endings of Twenty Eight Days Later was full full blood transfusion. Yeah, I'm willing to let it go because it's such a cool movie. The ride, it's it's more about the ride than anything because it is it's a great like vampire western is really yeah well, and romance i guess as well but um yeah I, it, it, it works on so many levels and it's such an enjoyable movie and by the way we got to this at the end of our return of the living dead um review last week too but this also has a fantastic score that features a song by the cramps as well um, yeah yeah <laughs> but also a uh, tangerine dream did the actual score of the movie which i'm a huge fan of their film scores I know we did a review with Ryan a while back on Legend, and he watched the movie without the Tangerine Dream score, and I felt kind of bad for him. So, um, yeah, it makes but... a big difference. <laughs> it really does. But yeah, the score here is really quite good. There's, there's just the the opening shot of the movie, you know, which is of a mosquito. Yeah, um, is is just a, a really kind of a cool hint of, of what's to come in a way you know like it's very symbolic just like actually it's funny this is like the second time this movie has been brought up in a few weeks but um in the opening scene of chud you know where you <laughs> yeah. have all these like homeless people that are being you know kind of brushed away uh it's, it's very symbolic of what one of the main themes of the film films is so even in something that would you know like i said this movie is really underappreciated it doesn't make it onto too many best 10 lists not because it's not good but because people just don't think about it anymore it's a forgotten film um but well and it's really quite good kind of a like this or lost boys thing about 80s vampire films and i've always been on the near dark side of that argument and not because i dislike the lost boys lost boys is great it's just i feel like lost boys is so 80s it's kind of a time capsule right um right but this one is a little more timeless like i feel like this one translates just as well now as it would um in the 80s there's nothing quintessentially 80 i mean there is but the tangerine dream score right but um but like story-wise like this could translate to any era and i feel like you're you're gonna pick up on the like the key elements of the story uh it's not so much a time capsule it's not you know it doesn't have you know the Corys and (laughs) yeah you know what if if this yeah i agree if this movie were to be remade today it would work well nowadays it would work even with the 80s style tangerine dream score Um, yeah because that's yeah because 
popular music new again but (laughs) but yeah and i think even even the fashions and stuff that's that's the west yeah that's the west that's how it is out there well and let's face it not a lot's changed there no it's like i said there's something beautifully desolate about the west that's one of the reasons i absolutely love it um so yeah i i this is uh one of my I, i know it's not officially a western but it's close enough where it's one of my favorite westerns and i'll fight whoever says it's not so (laughs) i mean it certainly is i think in the way that like it's not a classical john ford western necessarily but it's yeah it's certainly a western and yeah people say that a lot about about a lot of films that are kind of you know about outlaws and vagabonds but um, this one really is, I think, and because of the setting and because of the way it uses the setting and, and so foreign to anything else 80s, like there was nothing Western going on at all in the 80s. So, um, And then there was. <laughs> and then there was, yeah. Like like yeah. you said, a few years later, then we have the Young Guns and Silverado in the early 90s, Tombstone in the early 90s, and all of a sudden, boom, Westerns are back. But um, Yeah, Unforgiven yeah. all the way into the 90s. But So if you had to give Near Dark a grade, I think I know what it's going to be, but what would you give it? Um, I actually will give this one a B plus. I think it's got a few too many like little things that bug me with the narrative, but man, it's a, it's a great movie. Like the, the style and the, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a great, interesting vampire film and it's an interesting like Western, as you said, uh, issues here and there. Like we, we griped about the blood transfusion thing and there's just some, some elements that are a little weak. I, I feel like the villains kind of got the short end of the stick. Um, they could have handled that a little better. It's got a nice, like, 80s kind of action-y vibe at points that I like. Uh, the Western thing, the vampire thing. It's just... Also, the pacing of it. We were, we talk about the way that the storytelling is just so concise almost, but it's it's done to perfection. Um, so, yeah, I love, I love all of that about it. Can't quite give it the A that we gave... Um, return of the living dead because return of the living dead is one of those near perfect movies and this one's not quite but yeah i i i got i have a b written down but i gotta give it a plus b plus because it's almost there it's it's so close and it's it's certainly one of my favorite um horror action movies of the 80s um and i do prefer it to lost boys so that might be controversial but well, I think I'm right there too. I I would actually give this one more like an A minus. So yeah, pretty much you know same kind of thing. There's a few narrative issues that bother me, but I kind of figure if I'm already suspending disbelief about vampires, <laughs> essentially I can I can hold off on the you know getting too upset about the blood transfusion stuff. Though it is kind of an easy out. It is kind yeah. of a of a, a sloppy out. Um, the generally the pacing in this is so good that you, some of the uh, symptoms of that pacing are a bit apparent, but I really like the pacing, so I'll let it slide. But yeah, overall, I would agree too. I I don't know if I'd say I like this one more than Lost Boys. I think I like them both equally. Um, I think I know I've seen Lost Boys more because uh, it was more popular when it came out. But mm-hmm. um, I I would say I like this one. Oh, to me, it's like comparing. You know, so what'd you like better, Silence of the Lambs or Saving Private Ryan? I'm like, I don't know. Those are two totally different <laughs> movies that yeah. both have disturbing scenes in them. You know, but that's kind of where I am with here. Yeah, both of them are about vampires, but they're totally different. So I have a hard time 
saying I like one over the other, but they do make for interesting comparisons, especially considering that they're contemporary, you know, of, of each other. So, um, but uh, I do want to go ahead and ask if anybody has seen Near Dark, or can you think of any other movies that were kind of pinnacle turning points? We've talked about Return of the Living Dead, and we've talked about Near Dark as movies that took what the status quo was for that sh their subgenre and turned it around in a totally different direction. Can you think of any other films that uh, that did anything like that? Um, feel free to send us an email at videojunkyardpodcast at gmail.com uh, and you know, tell us what you think. You can also find us on Facebook under our Facebook groups or the main Facebook page, both of which are Video Junkyard Podcast, or send us a tweet at Video Junk Pod uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, let us know what you think. Can you think of any other films that do the same kind of of uh of of i guess like a big 90 degree turn just a completely different direction um, right and so and what do we have coming up on the show uh over the next couple of weeks lots of really good stuff coming up and lots of um kind of different stuff we're gonna be all over the place in the next few months we got uh everything from sword and sorcery to speaking of westerns we're gonna cover some westerns coming up we're gonna cover some musicals musicals in the video junkyard podcast you'll have to start imagining what that might be uh we're gonna cover some um less lesser known kevin costner films and uh also some forgotten franchise action coming up in the near future as well so if you don't know what that is it's when we uh take a series of films that has kind of fallen under the radar um you know from from years ago and take a look at all of the entries in that series so uh also we will in in multiple places i believe hopefully we'll get it worked out with schedule wise but but have uh ryan back on the show as yeah. well so ryan steiskel uh who has joined us in a couple times in the past is going to come back and help us out with some of those reviews so we will um, hopefully be bringing all of that to you with the help of Ryan in the near future. So I, I will leave you to guess. I didn't actually give you a title of anything this time. So No, and I, I, I do just want to add this one caveat to the Kevin Cosner series that we're going to do. Didn't, if I'm not mistaken, that arise out of us asking the question, what if Kevin Cosner actually kind of sucks? Yeah. And we're going to really explore that because I think it's worth doing. <laughs> you know? I think it's worth doing. But I want to thank everybody for tuning in and giving us a listen. Uh, this is the Video Junkyard Podcast. Until next time, I'm Joe Peterson. I'm Eric Branson. Everybody had a good evening. You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go. Stay on the road. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash video junkyard podcast on Twitter at video junk pod and on Instagram as video junkyard podcast all one word I want to thank you again for listening and keep digging who knows what treasures you'll find in the video junkyard <laughs>